The following was recorded in front of a live studio audience at the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe. This is the United Podcast Network. Welcome to the Stock Market Authority Podcast. I'm Bakes, Kevin Baker. I'm going to teach you how to make money in up and down markets. Very few podcasters or coaches cover this. I'll show you how to lock in profits and minimize losses to make you a better investor. So once a week, you're going to know what's going on in the world and the stock market. Welcome to the Stock Market Authority Podcast. Good morning, everyone. This is Bakes, Kevin Baker, Stock Market Authority. It's Wednesday, the 19th of July. I can't believe it's this far into 2023. Uh, welcome to everybody. And we, as you can probably tell, we got a different format going on. Normally, I come here and I talk to my friends from the University of Houston MBA program, the Bucknell Student Management Investment Fund, and everybody else. And uh, uh, I talk a lot about charts. I'm a very uh, visual person. I like to uh, go technicals first, fundamentals second. But I want to prove that I'm not just a pretty face looking at charts all the the time. I do a lot of fundamental work. I just do them in a different chronology than most people. And I found after interviewing thousands of CEOs and thousands of CFOs, when I get the technicals right and they align with the fundamentals, that's where the biggest winners are. So do me a favor, shameless plug, go to my YouTube channel and subscribe, please. It's painless, it's free, and please do it. Today, I'm interviewing a private company, not publicly traded, not on the stock exchange. It's an oncology company, SciTech Development. Uh, there's no, do, no chart here, obviously, but the due diligence is the same. And my process is honed after going through 25-plus years of, of meetings with thousands of C-suite executives and Poor David Schaefer, the uh, head of investor relations at SciTech, has sat through a lot of these, so he knows what's coming. Uh, poor Earl Halsapple, I'm pronouncing that right, I hope, the CEO, president, co-founder of SciTech joins us. We're going to check in on their progress. Gentlemen, welcome to Stock Market Authority. Thank you. Very much. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, thanks, and uh, great to see you as always. Uh, uh, good to see you, my friend. Now, he's a friend, but I'm not going to be softballing this. So this is going to be like we sit down at, at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference, capitalism speed dating. You go through 45-minute uh, interviews, 12 a day, and you frankly use this as a sieve. You know, is this worth doing more real nitty-gritty research on. So I know a lot about the company, but I sure as heck don't everything. So I'm going to go through what I would normally go through in that interview process to get to the crux of the matter. And uh, I'm going to start this the way I start all these things. Uh, Earl, because uh, David, I know yours to an extent. Earl, please tell me your path. How do you define SciTech and how do they, or how do they find you? <laughs> okay, well, I, I found SciTech uh, after I had gotten out of the food industry, believe it or not. I was in leverage up buyout business and sold a company and volunteered for a cancer center in Detroit. Uh, while at the cancer center, I got put in charge of a, of a new product think tank, which was kind of fun. Uh, and as a result of that, the National Cancer Institute came to us because they were conducting a clinical trial of a drug and say, and said, help us solve the problem of this drug. So I got recruited because I was the only business guy inside of uh, the Institute, other than the top leadership, uh, to come up with a, create a new SBIR company 
to solve the problem for the NCI. So that's how I got involved in this whole field. Prior to that, I ran consumer this is, this products. Is what, this companies. is what period of time, Earl? So, this is about when, just for my curiosity. Say again, please. This is about when, what time, what year, ballpark. Okay, so this, all right, this was uh, around 2000, 2000. Okay, great, great. Yeah. Right. I was also involved in the development of other technologies, like a new breast cancer detection technology that was recently approved. So I've, I've had a lot of fun uh, sort of developing and bringing uh, products to the point where they're useful in either diagnosing or treating cancer. So that's, that's how I got here. Okay, I appreciate that. David, uh, please tell me the story, and you guys can decide you know, how to divvy these up, but tell me the story of how uh, the, the SciTech development uh, program was, was developed, please. I'll, I'll start, Earl. We'll, we'll come in and finish here. It's, 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 it's really the foundation of where we are. So uh, the idea of developing a delivery platform for water-insoluble drugs is not new. The idea of developing a platform for water-insoluble drugs that can be delivered safely and effectively is quite challenging. And over time, there have been probably dozens, maybe even hundreds of different attempts to do this. We've seen several trials that show uh, a lot of you know, uh, failure, a few successes. Ours was developed out of a nanoparticle phospholipid bilayer structure, which wraps itself naturally around the water-insoluble molecule. Uh, it was not an easy task. It took uh, Ralph Parchment, uh, the innovator, about 15 years to do. So this is a long, hard row. Uh, there's a tremendous moat built around this delivery platform uh, and significant IP around the molecule as a result. Uh, what's the, me, go, you go ahead, Earl. Let me add a little bit. I mean, so I was telling you about uh, Carmanos and the NCI. Uh, so what happened was that they were doing a study of this drug called fenretinide, which is the drug that we've solved the uh, delivery problem for. Uh, and, and they just, they couldn't give enough drug to the patient and still get the therapeutic response, but they did see interesting data. So they challenged us, the NCI challenged us to come up with a new way to deliver the drug. And that's how we really got started with this whole endeavor. And what's the history of, of, of fenretinide for those of us who don't know all the, the details, who had it, uh, what were they treating and, and what happened with the patients and the trials and so forth, please, Earl. I mean, I mean, the, the history is amazing. I mean, this drug has been under development for decades. It was first uh, developed by, invented by Johnson and the old Johnson and Johnson as a, a skin disease uh, therapeutic to be uh, delivered systemically or orally. Uh, that that study uh, failed uh, because the drug uh, was not bioavailable. Then they decided to try it in a low-dose form, orally delivered again in a capsule, uh, to treat breast cancer prevention for women that had had, uh, had breast cancer. So they, it was a 3,000-patient, five-year study uh, that showed that the drug was uh, exceptionally safe, relatively speaking. Uh, and that it was better therapeutically than the, the drug that became the uh, standard of care, which is tamoxifen. Yet the uh, J&J was somewhat behind uh, in the development of this, so they chose to therefore transfer the technology instead of continuing to the National Cancer Institute, who then spent the next decades uh, funding uh, clinical studies and preclinical studies, you know, beyond so many, it's, it's almost staggering, 
And and out of that, they learned that the drug is 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 a great therapeutic. It's cytotoxic, so to speak. It kills cancer cells in numerous cancers, and and uh, and it's safe. So that that was really what made them like it. But the other thing was, it's a highly differentiated drug in that it it attaches to all cells, but only results in cell death for those cancer cells, not healthy cells. So that's why they spent so many years trying to make it work because of that great potential and because of the anecdotal data from the clinical studies that they had been conducting. And why apply SDP, your delivery platform, to retinide first, please? Well, it's, it's really the other way around. So remember, the NCI asked us to come up with a delivery system for fenretinide. Okay. So we created it for fenretinide and then realized it had great potential uh, for, for delivering other uh, drugs that were hydrophobic or toxic or whatever. What other drugs are you working on currently deploying SDP technology, <clears throat> if any? None. Okay, none we, for now. Okay, fine, fine. Uh, uh, David, who are the customers, patients, doctors? I usually ask customers, but in this case, you know, who are the patients? Who are the doctors? How many of them uh, are they? Have they already been treated? Give me a sense of, of that landscape, please. As you point out, the, the customers for an early stage or preclinical company like SciTech currently are the clinical sites, the ability to effectively recruit those clinical. Uh, physicians who will be running our trial, uh, becoming medical advisors to the company. Uh, we have presently over 20 different sites that have shown interest in wanting to host our clinical trial. Uh, the current leads uh, are the University of Pittsburgh and the University of Southern California, though, as I said, the list is now over 20 that, that are showing interest. In addition to that, we've put together a medical advisory board uh, that really is is you know, will be tremendous in terms of supporting the SciTech effort. Uh, those are lead lymphoma doctors from MD Anderson, Columbia University, and Fred Hutchinson mm-hmm. Cancer Center. Beyond the clinical trial, as you point out, it's all about getting to the physicians. It's getting to the patients. Uh, they're all in search of cancer treatments that would show better likelihood of patient benefit versus existing options. And we think that's exactly uh, where ST001 is headed. And this is T-cell lymphoma for right now, Correct. Yes, T cell lymphoma uh, is the first target. Our uh, as as our uh, landscape currently sits, small cell lung cancer uh, likely to be number two with uh, breast cancer. Number three, there are another dozen or so cancer types behind that where there's already both direct and indirect data uh, on the effectiveness of fenretinide in treating those cancers. All right, help me out with this because I, I you know I I need focus. My ADHD rages sometimes, so. Uh, for right now, it's it's T cell lymphoma robust. We can talk. Is that is that a fair statement for right now? Yes. Okay. It, it, it's it's T cell lymphoma because there's prior clinical data uh, using fenretinide that has shown great responses, as much as two thirds response rates. Unfortunately, they used ingredients in the delivery system to solve the delivery problem uh, that caused side effects. So. Uh, that's, but it's great proof of concept for us, and so we're going for the low hanging fruit okay. uh, to get early approval from the FDA. How many patients uh, suffer from T cell lymphoma mm-hmm. that are candidates for your trial and hopefully ultimately your treatment? St. Double O One. 
It's it's what they call an orphan disease, a rare disease. So they're probably about five thousand patients a year in the U.S. for the for the various uh, T cell and get indications we're going after. Okay, and I, my suspicion is this is a little bit <clears throat> like the other orphan drugs: is that once you have a treatment, it doesn't become so orphan, and you find more patients. Is that a fair statement? Well, yes. I mean, we've we've got a clinician who says that uh, going after T cell is going is going after uh, an entree uh, uh, treatment, so that it's it's really a way to get into the clinic, uh, prove initial efficacy, and then move on. So that, I guess you called it gateway. So move on to other cancer types. Okay, we're going to go for a break in a minute, but before I do that, I want to ask uh, David: How are T cell lymphoma patients? treated now, please. There are several different treatment options that uh, are prescribed for T-cell lymphoma patients today. Uh, the most uh, widely used is a, is a combination therapy called CHOP, C-H-O-P, which is an acronym for the four leading medicines that are used in combination. Uh, the therapy uh, does show a modest amount of success. It's also very toxic to the patient, so it's it's somewhat uh, limiting in terms of its long-term use. And uh, you know, in addition to that, depending on the type of T-cell lymphoma, it could be surgery, radiation, chemotherapy. You're seeing a new wave of targeted antibodies, immunotherapies, genetic-based drugs. Uh, all of these are becoming options. However, as you move down that curve, the cost goes up significantly, the risks go up significantly. The challenge with many of those existing treatments is that they're simply not very effective, they're toxic to the patients, or they're used to the point where patients develop immunity, those therapies. What we like about ST001, uh, based on the history and the data, is it seems to overcome uh, all of those challenges. And uh, the patients you're treating or hope to treat are they treatment naive at the top of the funnel, or have they gone through all the litany of treatments that you just described? Please. The latter. Okay. They've been they're they're late stage patients, typically stage four, who have tried every therapy available and and they didn't get the results. And needed. and so, what does success look like? What what data do you need to to, to have a, a, a something that the FDA will approve? In your view please. Well, so we've got the example of the emulsion study that I talked about where there was a 67% response rate. Our, our goal is to at least replicate uh, that level of responses, absence the side effects that they had from the use of ingredients that were uh, somewhat toxic, okay? And the emulsion study, that was, uh, uh, you know, stage four patients, Predominantly? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Fine. That's great. Uh, and the, the approximate cost of, let's say, CHOP, if that's the, the uh, uh, you know, first line that they, they try for T-cell lymphoma patients, what's that? If I'm an insurer, what am I going to pay for that every single year? Well, to Targretin, Chop, I mean, they're they're in in the range of about $75,000 uh, a, a a cycle, so to speak. So let's say every six months, $75,000. Okay. Uh, if you're successful, you could charge a premium to that, I assume, correct? 
you know, we, you know, it's we're, we're not the pharmaceutical companies that'll probably be marketing, but our cost will allow us to sell it for significantly less. Where it will actually get priced is a little premature to uh, to guess. Okay, uh, we're going to take a quick break, but I want to uh, a little teaser. I want to ask why I care about phase one. I'm going to go through some good, bad, and ugly, and I'm going to go through <clears throat> some catalysts right after this quick break. Thank you very much. Do you want to become a better investor? Do you want to learn how to make money in both up and down markets? Then you need to go to stockmarketauthority.com and sign up for our free newsletter today. Stock Market Authority is run by award-winning investment manager Kevin Bakes-Baker. His aim is to save you time while teaching you how to be a better investor. Bakes saves you time by diving into all the latest stock market news and information so that you don't have to. He reads all the latest articles, analyzes the charts, and listens to all the relevant podcasts. And then once a week, he gives you a breakdown of what's happening in the market. Stock Market Authority is constantly outperforming the S&P and the HFRX. Bakes is going to share with you his weekly stock observations. He'll give you concise insights and show you how to lock in profits and minimize losses. Stock Market Authority is making money in up and down markets. Wouldn't you like to do the same? So join now and let Bakes show you how. Head on over to stockmarketauthority.com and sign up for our free newsletter today. That's stockmarketauthority.com, making money in up and down markets. And we're back, and today we're talking to Earl Hulsapple, the CEO of SciTech, and my good friend David Schaefer, Investor Relations, Business Development. And, and gentlemen, we talked about this uh, a little bit before the show started, but I want to delve into it again, uh, and I'm going to take the gloves off a little bit. Why do I care about Phase One? If this is a public company, Phase One doesn't 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 move the stock. Uh, for a private company, I don't think it increases valuation all that much. Uh, it seems like that's sort of you know table stakes until you get to Phase Two and Three, and you get to something that can file that has real data that the FDA will you know likely approve. So I'll say it again: Why do I care about Phase One? Great, great question, Bakes. Um, you have to look at it and recognize that the FDA has changed the way they set up clinical trials compared to what they used to. So we have what they refer to as an, an accelerated trial, and it's accelerated in terms of the dose escalation process and the number of patients required uh, to, to confirm uh, safety and then subsequently efficacy. So we break our study down into phase 1A and B. Phase 1A is similar to a phase 1 safety study, but with a lot less patients, a much shorter period of time. <clears throat> we can confirm safety almost immediately uh, once we start putting patients online and start seeing efficacy in phase one. Phase 1B, we arrive at a therapeutic dose. We treat the patient and confirm the kind of, of uh, efficacy that I talked about before. And, and so it's a 44-patient study, 18 months. A typical phase one would be 18 to 24 months and a lot more patients. Phase two would be even longer and then going into phase three. So we have guidance from the FDA on how to get FDA approval to sell our drug for T-cell patients uh, once we have completed the 18-month study. So we're anticipated we could be in the market in less than two years. So that's why you should give a damn. It's not like anything you might have seen before. Okay, so I still, I still didn't hear anything about just... phase two or three. So enlighten me. You know, no... 
you know, do you need a phase two? Do you need a phase three? Or and is just one accelerated? I'm still unclear, please. So the, the FDA's guidance is come back to us as we're uh, collecting efficacy data in phase 1B, assuming that the response rates are as high, say, as the, we're in the emulsion study, the number of patients we have will be sufficient. We will not need uh, to go to a typical phase two or three. We'll move straight to uh, NDA approval. Okay. Uh, and how, 44 patients, that's all you need? Well, 44 patients, but it depends on the response rates and whether there are side effects. We don't believe there will be any. So based on that, yes. But if we had uh, a lesser uh, performing drug, uh, it might require more patients. Are you enrolling patients right now as we speak? We're about to enroll. So we're, we're ready to start the trial in about six weeks, as David said, first at the uh, uh, University of, of Pittsburgh Medical uh, School Center, and then uh, on uh, to the University of Southern California. So th that enrollment starts as soon as uh, the contract is signed. Okay, shouldn't take it. Both sites say they got patients; they could enroll immediately. And mm -hmm. is this is this similar to to I go to the Genzyme example, Gachet's? Do is, is there you know? Uh, advocacy groups that are strident, that are lobbying like crazy, that you know, uh, 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 disseminate this 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 type of information, or, or am I barking up the wrong tree? No, there's you know, so the the advocates for us are the clinicians. I okay. mean, David and I were at a at a clinicians meeting in New Orleans a few months ago. And we were followed around by every clinician wanting to uh, learn more about our drug and 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 test it in their in their location. So they'll be the advocates initially. You're sure it wasn't your scintillating personality and your penchant for F2FE? No. Well, no. it might have been David. I don't know about oh, myself. All right. Uh, okay. Let's cut to the chase now. Uh, competitors. Tell me uh, either the current competitors that uh, uh, are out there or or trials competing trials that either may drain patients or take away a lot of the patient population if they have succeeding uh, clinical trials, please. Who are the competitors? David, do you want to, do you want to take that one, David? <clears throat> so the, the competitors out there, uh, specific to fenretinide, there was one that uh, created the emulsion uh, delivery platform, a group out of UCLA. That was a group called CERX. Uh, they... Uh, brought the product into a phase two trial where it subsequently produced the response rates that Earl was talking about earlier, that uh, roughly two thirds response rate, which is extremely high in, in the oncology space. But it also produced dose limiting toxicities due to triglyceridemia or you know, heavy triglyceride, triglyceride um, uh, saturation in the emulsion itself. So it proved to uh, not be competitive. Targretin, uh, its use is very limited. It's also very toxic, as is uh, most chemotherapy. For anybody who's ever been through it or knows somebody who's been through it, it's it's truly like uh, trying to crawl through a mud field uh, in many respects. And you know, as we've talked about with uh, T cell lymphoma and, and starting in phase, the later phases, phase three, phase four, it's our expectation that over uh, the period of perhaps a couple of years. Uh, ST001 will, uh, we, we believe it will likely become the, uh, the, fr the frontline treatment in, in T cell lymphomas. 
and then expanding to other cancers as well. So from a broader market perspective, uh, every large company has an oncology effort. You know, many of them uh, generating billions of dollars in revenue. Katruda is the largest uh, oncology product in the marketplace today. Last year, producing, you know, uh, you know, a number closing in on twenty billion dollars a year in revenue. So it's an incredibly important uh, revenue producer for Merck, and and you know, Merck is constantly looking for ways to expand uh, the market presence of that drug. So you know. From a competitive perspective, we think we're in the right spot. We think we've got a product that uh, will show itself to be safe, reconfirm efficacy. Uh, as Earl indicated, uh, we believe it will be affordable. And as we've talked about, uh, the impact it will have on multiple cancer types, not just a single cancer type. Thanks. Can I add one thing to that? Sure. Uh, when we were at that clinical conference in, in uh, New Orleans a few months ago. The clinicians were going through the pipeline of, of possible drugs coming, uh, you know, available for their use, and the, and the and the list was almost non-existent. Um, what's so the, what's, what, were, Earl? What's what's the most promising one that they mention that, uh, as I do, what we used to call trade checks? I can go talk to them, put them into Google alerts, and monitor what they're doing so that their good news isn't bad news for you. Please. Well, I, you know, I, I don't mean to sound ignorant, but I don't think we took note of the ones that they were looking at because they were all very limited in their scope uh, and 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 far away from a developmental point of view. The immunotherapies uh, and and targeted therapies that they had been counting on on failed. So we didn't see anything there that was a threat. They started talking about N of one studies where they would combine various drugs with a, on an individual basis with uh, patients. There's no way they were going to be talking about that uh, if there was a therapy that was really promising. And that's why they paid so much attention to us, not because of our looks, but because we had something that was very promising and they wanted to be part of it and they were excited. And the reason they hadn't paid attention until recently was because they thought those immunotherapies were going to work and they didn't. Okay. Uh, and, um, I guess Earl, give me the bear story. You know, when you find the people who don't like your good looks and your pension for etouffee, uh, you know, they say this isn't going to work. And these are the, I've, I've seen this movie. This is why it's going to fail. What do they say, please? Yeah, well, I mean, this is uh, a new drug. I mean, this, despite the fact that we're enabling an active drug that's been around for years and been shown to be safe, you combine it in, in a new form, in a new molecule, it could uh, perform differently than we anticipate. So that, that would certainly uh, be a possibility. There's the possibility of other drugs uh, all of a sudden coming on the scene that we didn't see coming. Uh, there's the the failure to raise the capital required that uh, you know that we need to keep this rapidly accelerating clinical trial going. So there there are lots of things that go wrong, but I think from a risk uh, reward point of view, this one's pretty ideal because there's so much known about the ingredients and the drug itself, so it's likely to be safe. There's so much known about its, its uh, potential as a therapeutic when you get the dose levels up to the, to the 
describe you know prescribed level uh and we've got the a great team to execute on this from every angle so i think that we we don't have the kind of advisors coming from MD Anderson or Columbia or Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Washington coming on board or Tony Poverino, who is a, a, a real expert in this field, coming on board to work with us if they didn't believe this was a low risk, high probability opportunity. I'm going to betray my, my, uh, my ignorance. That ghost levels, what is that, please? That's a new term for me. Ghost levels? Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. I, you you oh, just mentioned dose. something about, you, about ghost levels. Dose. Oh, dose, dose levels. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. sorry. It's the, it's the amount right. of drug that actually no, gets into that, the blood. Dose I know. Dose I know. Uh, and uh, uh, how is this administered, please? And what are the, the, the challenges that that, that, uh, that creates, please? Well, it's, it's, it's an intravenous drug. It's a nanoparticle intravenous drug. Um, so the patient has to come into an outpatient setting and stay there for about four hours to be infused. They, the, the prior competitive product that they've talked about, Cirex, is they had to stay in the hospital. So it's a five-day five uh, infusion. So they have to come back five days in a row, and then they're observed for two weeks, and then they go to the, go to the next dose. Challenges? I don't know. I don't think we, we, we see serious challenges. This kind of administration takes place every day. Uh, probably the hardest part is for the for the patient to show up at the clinical site uh, five days in a row. So we're we're picking sites where that's easier, not picking rural sites where they have to travel in from a long distance. So, mm -hmm. But it, it's really looking good. And you're enrolling everything in the U.S., correct? Yes. Have you hired a CRO? No, we're we're uh, we've got. Uh, we're working with some of the new data systems that allow us to manage every aspect of it ourselves. We've got uh, a chief uh, medical officer who's working with us. We've got monitors who are working with us. And we think that the new data management systems give us everything we need, at least initially. We're only starting off with two sites. When we get up to six or eight sites, the odds are we will bring in a CRO because okay. it will it will overtax our our uh, ability to manage so many patients and, and sites. And for my audience, I delve into acronyms <laughs> all the time, and I apologize. That's contract research organization, and they're the ones that that tend to work. You know, get hired by by firms like SciTech, firms like Merck, firms like Lilly, et cetera, to run the clinical trials, find the patients, find the sites, et cetera, and, you know, <clears throat> and monitor all the data. Uh, uh, Earl brought it up, David, uh, raising money. Uh, I mean, this is, uh, this is biotech. It's eternal. What's the cash level now? What's the burn? What are the capital raising milestones that you have out there that, that might get people enthusiastic, please? I think the current cash level uh, supports the effort through uh, the be the early stages of the accelerated phase one. The current capital raise that we're uh, that we've just opened will extend that runway uh, to you know, through the accelerated phase one a trial and prepare us for phase one B, and that will leave uh, a Series A funding that will get us through, we believe conservatively through to commercialization. The total amount of remaining funding that uh, we believe is necessary uh, based on the FDA guidance to get to commercialization is $17 million. You know, the current burn rate is roughly $80,000 a month. The capital raising milestones and you know the value improving catalysts 
including the completion of manufacturing of the clinical batch, the execution of the first clinical site, the dosing of the first patient, and the dosing and the data from subsequent patients, I believe will all act as very strong catalysts to enable us to keep uh, capital coming into the company, uh, you know, and, and matching the acceleration of expenses that Earl just outlined. But we're, we're, we're comfortable, as we've talked to a number of investors, that the confirming data that we collect uh, from the trial will be the most significant catalyst and will likely uh, bring in uh, the, the most capital uh, in the quickest manner. All right. So if, if you were a publicly traded company, because when I hear manufacturing sites and dosing first patients, those are not stock moving events. Those are expenses. And, and catalysts to me are synonyms for, for revenue de-risking events. So through that prism, over the next 12 to 24 months specifically, what are the, the, the uh, data or what, what are the catalysts that fit my definition of a catalyst over that time period, please? And I thought you were going to keep softball questions out of the space. I thought it was flag check. You know, love, you know, love me warts and all. Love me warts and all, so, Dave. You know, so we've, you want so to play softball, call top, Jenny Finch. The top line, the top line can, uh, uh, catalyst that we're, you're going to, that you will likely see will involve uh, licensing of ST001 prior to uh, the FDA approval. Those licenses typically are milestone based and bring in non-dilutive capital, which uh, is a significant catalyst and a significant valuation moving, uh, needle moving event. Uh, we would think that uh, combination therapy type catalysts where SC001 will be tried or uh, put in the clinic side by side with existing drugs or with other advancing therapies uh, will be very significant to valuation improving efforts that, that you'll likely see. Uh, number two, uh, there, there will likely be uh, other pharmaceutical companies that will show an interest in wanting to help develop this drug and, and their uh, insertion of capital into SciTech, I think also would be a meaningful you know, catalyst from a credibility perspective or from a third party validation perspective. And then finally, as you look at uh, visibility on revenue, I think that's ultimately where your your the, you know, the funnel uh, ends is that uh, we've got an in, initial addressable market that we're looking at for the first three cancer types that uh, is approximately $2 billion. And uh, while no cancer company or no cancer product could ever expect to gain 100% of any addressable market, uh, it's uh, for a company, for a product like this, which we think could become a frontline treatment you know, let's say within a three to five year period of its approval, you could you could reasonably expect to see market shares of that two billion dollar TAM uh, approach 25, 30, 35 percent of the market. So you can start to see visibility on that kind of a number uh, once the FDA would approve the product, uh, you know, post the phase one B trial. I, I and, and you are extraordinarily uh, skeptical of TAMs. I mean, that's blue sky. And so what I heard was that there's 5,000 patients that fit the bill. That's the only thing you, you're, you're going after right now. And it's a $75,000 number. So that sounds like the, the TAM, <clears throat> TAM for right now. So what is the data that is coming up and when that would give some enthusiasm to the aforementioned partners, other pharma companies, so they write you a check? 
please. Well, I, 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 let me let me try that one. You know, so I think that uh, the important data first is the safety data. You, what you would typically see out of an old-fashioned phase one A or phase one. I mean, okay. Followed right behind that, based on our our accelerated trial, is the efficacy data. So the efficacy data is really, in my humble opinion, the holy grail, the proof of concept that absolutely establishes this as a, a drug of very significant potential, both as a monotherapy and a combo therapy. And, and you know, you don't see response rates in the two-thirds uh, range uh, very often. You don't see a drug that's likely to be relatively safe and maybe have a minimal side effects uh, like diarrhea or night blindness. So, you know, that if that doesn't entice people to put money in, I don't know what would. And then you look at the markets David talked about. I mean, this drug has likely potential use in both solid tumors and blood disorders. So you can talk about T-cell, but we could rapidly and will most likely be rapidly in other uh, diseases quickly. What are we going to know about the current patients that you're trying to enroll in the next six weeks? <clears throat> when do we see data in T-cell lymphoma that suggests that this thing works? Please. About nine months uh, into the study, we would have pretty solid both safety and early efficacy data. Okay, so let's say it's safely tw 12 months. You've got data on 44 patients for T-cell lymphoma, and it says the response rate is X. Fair? Well, well, no, because the study is an 18-month study, so that, that conclusion comes at the end of 18 months. Okay, so some it, data <laughs> on some patients at the end of 12 months. Correct. Okay. And uh, if the if the response rate comes in at 62%, uh, what kind of a problem do you have on your hands, please? That's not, not material. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a, a broad range here. We're talking about high, high efficacy rates, okay. however, however you want to characterize it. And so, you know, so I don't think whether it was 50 or 75 is going to materially okay. change. Okay, I just heard the 67% number yeah. a number of times, and I wanted to make sure that a 62 wasn't a miss. That, that's my, uh, my point. Now, because uh, I know you guys like to, like to go there, and, but I'm going to put a little bit of uh, parameters on it. Give me the top two opportunities that you, that you face or, or present themselves for ST001 uh, in other cancers, please. Well, you know, I, I would I'd like to start there. So it's it's been shown to be very effective in a very bad setting in small cell lung cancer, for example. This this data was collected by our inventor at the Tomanos Cancer Institute, where, where there were a significant uh, stabilization of disease despite the fact that the drug didn't reach uh, high doses. So that is certainly one. But there are other aggressive cancers for which we're going to go after. Uh, the women's health disease, like aggressive breast cancer, or ovarian, or pancreatic cancer. And what's really going to drive us to, to which one is, is next is more the kind of data that we can collect using AI and, and accumulating everything that's known 
from all the hundreds of studies that I described to you uh, previously in all the clinical studies that really didn't have anything to do with our drugs. So you, you, they're, they're big. You, they're you, big. You hit the over, 39 minutes, and, and AI comes up. That's, that's, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, that's better than what Kroger did the other day. Uh, hey, listen, I hope you had fun. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Earl David, hope we, we meet again and we talk about your progress. Um, uh, did you have fun today? Yes, okay. this is great. We love fun. these questions. Yeah, all right. Love you, Bakes. Um, uh, number one, okay, you know, I don't have a fancy uh, legalese disclaimer, but you're smart people. This isn't financial advice. I'm not soliciting a buy or a sell. Uh, I like David, but I'm going to do a lot more due diligence if I ever invested in this. Uh, David, do me a favor, give your contact info. We'll have it in the show notes as well. But how do people reach out to you? Mm-hmm. David, it's David Schaefer. It's drs at scitechdevelopment.com uh, email. And uh, look forward to uh, the inbound traffic and helping you understand SciTech, uh, you know, in, in, in most positive and productive way. And for, for my audience, what I would do after I leave this, I'd say, okay, I think there's something going on here. I need to do more work. I would grab the offering memorandum that's out there that, you know, discloses every conceivable risk and opportunity that, that, is, that is there, that's available. Uh, uh, there obviously is a lot of information on the website. You can go talk to doctors and what have you. But I would leave here and say, yeah, there's something going on here. It's worth doing some more work. Um, and after we talk about uh, T-cell lymphoma and other cancers, uh, I like to finish with, uh, 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 first of all, before I do that, uh, please go to my YouTube channel and, and, and subscribe. I'm going to be doing a lot more of this if you tell me to. So I need to hear from you as to, is this helpful? Does it add value? Do you want to see more of it? But after talking about cancer for, uh, for 45 minutes, uh, I need some much-needed levity, and I think you do too. So this is Don Gavin, uh, a great Boston comedian. I'm not good with money. I want to see you next week. I'm very likely to go more nuclear. That's a tease, and uh, I hope you had a, a great time, and I will see you next week. Keep smiling, and I'll see you soon. Earl, David, thank you very much. God bless. Thank you. Thank you, Max. The views and opinions expressed by the hosts, guests, or callers of this program do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Studio 21 Podcast Cafe, the United Podcast Network, its partners or affiliates.